0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. The major title of this program is Life with Cancer, Life with Breast Cancer, Updates from the 42nd Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or S-A-B-C-S. And today's part one of this two-part series, and it's the latest developments reported at the 42nd SABS conference symposium. And um, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations and many other breast cancer organizations as well. And we really welcome their um, involvement with the program today. And um, it's because of your interest in this, of course, this symposium, which is really we've been doing this for so many years now, this, right, we try to do it as quickly after San Antonio as possible. Um, It's that, wanting to get all that news that you want to hear. And then also, of course, and from experts, giving you that information. And then also, um, we also... uh partner with a lot of these different organizations to help to spread the word about the program as well. So it's a combination of those things. And so we have on the program today over 427 participants. You come from all of the United States, so urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Iraq, Lithuania, Nepal, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call, and really a credit to each of you that you're on this call today. Um, and today's program is supported um by Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julie Graylow. And Dr. Graylow is the Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, Director of Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director of Breast Cancer Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Dr. Grayler will be addressing highlights in breast cancer from clinical trials presented at SABCS, updates on the treatment of ER, PR, and HER2 negative, or triple negative breast cancer, including immunotherapy, and new research re- reported for the treatment of early-stage breast cancer. It's really now my honor and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grayler. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, A little background
2: for all of you listening on the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. As Carolyn's mentioned, this was the 42nd annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. The first one was held in 1978. And what's unique about this annual meeting is that we have a broad mix of attendees. We have epidemiologists and laboratory scientists and clinical trialists, Clinicians, including medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons, pathologists, radiologists, and increasingly we have patient advocates attending and participating in the program, which is very exciting. The symposium generally has a wide range of topics. Um, We include some basic laboratory uh, studies, Uh, we talk about prevention, uh, detection, and diagnosis treatment, supportive care, and survivorship, so it's a a broad mix of attendees and a broad mix of topics. Uh, What I'd like to outline in my uh, brief time this morning is uh, the, the presentations primarily with respect to what we call triple negative breast cancer, a breast cancer that doesn't express estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or the HER2 receptor. And I think where the most interesting presentations occurred is in the area of immunotherapy for triple negative breast cancer. And we had some presentations both looking at the immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, in advanced or metastatic breast cancer as well as in earlier stage breast cancer. Now, a little background on immune checkpoint inhibitors. So they're, they're drugs that fall under the category of immunotherapy, and the, they unleash the immune system, and so these drugs we call immune checkpoint inhibitors, they are kind of unhooking the body's normal ability to kind of protect normal cells where we mask normal cells and tell the immune cells don't fight me I'm you you know and and yet cancer cells can do that too and in that setting you want to kind of uncloak that protection uh, of the cancer cell so the immune system can recognize the cell. So we're, un- we're basically unleashing uh, the immune checkpoint so that now that we can allow our own normal immune system to recognize the cancer as abnormal. So that's the background. In 2019, we actually had the approval of the first immune checkpoint inhibitor in metastatic triple-negative breast cancer, and that drug was atezolizumab. Also called Ticentric, and it was approved uh, just this year in metastatic triple negative breast cancer that had immune cells around it that expressed something called PDL1. So that's part of the immune checkpoint. And about 47% of metastatic uh, triple negative breast cancer meets that criteria for also having surrounding immune cells that express PDL1. So I'm going to just briefly overview three key presentations that fall in the category of immune checkpoint inhibitors in triple negative breast cancer. The first was an update on a study we had seen um, presented a few months prior um, called the Keynote 522 study. And this was a study now in earlier stage triple negative breast cancer patients just diagnosed who were undergoing preoperative chemotherapy with plans for surgery to the breast and lymph nodes. And in this particular trial, uh, in addition to standard chemotherapy, patients were randomized to have pembrolizumab, which is also called truda, one of the immune checkpoint inhibitors added to the chemo or not. And the main endpoint of the study was how many patients had complete elimination of the cancer in their breast and lymph nodes at the time of surgery in the group that just got chemo versus the group that had chemo with the pembrolizumab. And we'd seen a few months ago that the pembrolizumab improved what we call pathologic complete response, elimination of all cancer in the breast and lymph nodes at the time of surgery. So it was a positive trial. And what we're waiting for is... Uh, whether that elimination of all the cancer in the breast and the lymph nodes translates to less recurrences and ultimately less deaths due to breast cancer. We haven't seen that yet. The update at San Antonio was really just to update us on toxicities and some subgroup analyses where we had a hint of some early relapses, but nothing uh, that was um, that was final yet. What was interesting about that keynote five hundred twenty two trial with pembrolizumab was that the pdl one status didn 't seem to matter, whereas in the metastatic setting with atezolizumab, a close cousin of pembrolizumab, it did. So that confused us a bit, and we all decided we need to figure out which patients benefit and which don't, and we're a little bit confused now. Um, We then saw another trial at San Antonio that was done by a group called the Michelangelo Group, and this was a trial looking at atezolizumab, that drug, an immune checkpoint inhibitor already approved in metastatic breast cancer. And it um, was looking now at it in the preoperative setting. So this was a smaller trial than the trial I just told you about with pembrolizumab. It had um, a different chemotherapy. It had different endpoints. It had a different duration of the of the immune checkpoint inhibitor. But the disappointing thing was it was negative. We did not see more elimination of all cancer in the breast and the lymph nodes. Um, in this trial looking at adding atezolizumab. So that also confused us. Was it was it the drug? Was it the chemotherapy was different? Was it that we were testing for PD-L1 differently? We're not entirely sure, but what we do know is we have many more trials that are ongoing that are going to help us sort this out. So right now I would say that with those two studies, it's not sh- clear which early stage patients benefit from an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and none are yet approved by the FDA. Now, the last trial that involved immune checkpoint inhibitors that we saw at San Antonio was a trial with yet a third immune checkpoint inhibitor called dervalimab or IMFINZ. <coughs> Excuse me. And this was a trial in patients with metastatic breast cancer. It was not confined to triple negative. You could also be estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative. And it was an interesting trial where patients um, got six to eight cycles of chemotherapy first and then as long as they either had a response to the initial chemo or they had stable disease, they were then randomized to continue the chemo they were on or switch to just the immune checkpoint inhibitor, durvalumab alone as what we call maintenance. And overall, there was no difference whether you kept going on the chemo or you did the switch to durvalumab. So durvalumab for the group as a whole wasn't better, but it wasn't worse. And when we picked out the small number of patients who were triple negative here, we had hints that that group might be doing better if they stopped their chemo and were switched to dervalimab. and that deserves further follow-up and is more interesting because even though all of these immune checkpoint inhibitors have some side effects, in general, I would say, overall, they're a lot better than if you keep going on chemo. And so I'll close by just pointing out that this is exciting. We now have immunotherapy approved and promising early stage results that will likely lead to approval of these drugs. Uh, We have to figure out how to manage the side effects. Thyroid abnormalities, either hyper or hypothyroidism, are common from these drugs. And then inflammation of some of the normal organs like the lungs, the liver, the colon, the adrenal glands can happen. So we've got to figure out the side effects. And uh, we have to figure out how to best select patients who are going to benefit from these drugs. But I think it's exciting that we now have immunotherapy that's showing some very promising results and even one drug already FDA approved that can benefit triple negative patients. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you so much. That was really outstanding, and just a wonderful, mm, wonderful beginning for this program. <clears throat> very well put together, and um, and I think very helpful to everyone. And I think for the triple negative community as well, to have highlights for them is so important. So thank you, know There'll be questions on this for the on the Q and A. Our next speaker is Dr. Roberto Leon Fair. Uh, Dr. Fair is um, assistant professor, Division of Medical Oncology, Mayo Clinic, mm-hmm. and Dr. Uh, Roberto. Leon Frere will be addressing how genomics and genetics inform breast cancer treatment, SABCS updates on targeted treatment for HER2-positive breast cancer, and management of metastatic and late-recurrence breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure and privilege to um, present to you uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roberto Leon Ferrer, who will be now addressing um, these topics, Dr. Leon
0: Ferreira.
3: Thank you, Caroline. Uh, really appreciate the invitation and the audience for joining us. Um, so uh, just to follow on, on Dr. Agrelo's, uh excellent summary on, on San Antonio, um, I would echo uh, what she had mentioned that a lot of the most exciting um, data were presented also in, in the HER2-positive space. So we have a lot of activity, you know, in, in, that is affecting multiple subtypes of, uh, of breast cancer. Uh, addressing a little more the topic of genomics and genetics for breast cancer treatment, uh, just as a background, um, you know, we have um, over the over the the um last several years uh, started to uh, move away a little bit from uh, only characterizing breast cancer based on how big the tumor may be and how many lymph nodes may be involved or how many sites of, um, of distant spread there may be, and we're starting to learn a lot about the biology of, of, of cancer and learning that uh, you know the the anatomy or the size and the extent of involvement may not be the only important thing, but there are also uh, key uh, things within the tumor that. You know, make it either more susceptible to certain treatments, or that may predict some resistance to other treatments, and help us uh, better inform treatment selection for our patients. So, uh, you know, a clear example of that uh, type of uh, uh, genomic analysis is what we've learned with Oncotype DX and and, and other genomic assays that help us predict. Um, you know which patients have uh, such a, a favorable biology that uh, it may be safe to uh, uh, omit chemotherapy and treat them with endocrine therapy alone or antiestrogen therapy alone. Um, so just like like we're learning that in the early stage disease, there's also um, some advancements in the metastatic setting where we're identifying certain mutations that allow us to select specific treatments that may not be in the category of chemotherapy. Uh, one of those examples is. Uh, the presence of a PIK3CA mutation, which uh, allowed us to now select a new drug called alpelesib, or Picray which was recently approved for metastatic uh, estrogen-dependent breast cancer. Uh, In San Antonio, we also saw some interesting data in this realm, uh, in this type of analysis, uh, showing that there may be promising uh, promising ability to use uh, certain genomic markers in the blood uh, to try to determine uh, whether there is any uh, microscopic residual disease after a patient has uh, completed their intended chemotherapy and surgery, and we're seeing that with different combinations of these assays that are being developed, um, you know we may be able to detect uh, some patients that still have microscopic disease that is not you know, detected by traditional methods and that may allow us to in the future um you know make decisions regarding treatment. Now this is still um you know uh in research and is something that is not ready to be applied in the clinic but uh you know it's certainly very exciting to think of the prospect that we may not uh um you know we may now be able to detect disease that is uh not detectable by traditional methods such as uh with the scans. Um now, uh, moving on to the more uh, specific topic of HER2-positive breast cancer, uh, we had a lot of uh, very interesting data and, and and new agents that are uh, creating a lot of excitement on, on, in our communities because of the potential they have to help patients that uh, before may have had uh, limited options. Uh, one of those examples is the HER2-CLIMB study, which is um, a study that, evaluated a drug called tucatinib, which is an oral um, uh, HER2-blocking medication, and evaluated whether adding that medication to a more traditional treatment of uh, chemotherapy with capecitabine and trastuzumab, or Herceptin, whether the addition of this oral drug would improve uh, the ability to control cancer for longer in patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And um, What's interesting about this study is, one, uh, you know, this was um, for patients that had already been treated with uh, with other active agents, such as trastuzumab and pertuzumab, which are typically drugs that are given uh, at the beginning of uh, the diagnosis of someone having metastatic disease. And these patients had also received uh, Catsila or TDM1, which is a drug that we usually use in the second-line setting and then uh, this this drug was used in the third line setting uh, primarily, and um, what we saw is that uh, of the uh, of the patients that were exposed to this uh, oral drug, the cancer control uh, lasted for for longer a longer period of time than uh, the traditional chemotherapy with herceptin alone and what 's most interesting is also that this study allowed patients that have um, you know, spread of the cancer to the brain, which is uh, something that can happen in patients that have her to positive breast cancer and for which we, um, you know, have not traditionally had a lot of treatment options. So this study allowed those patients to enroll in the study, and we saw that this combination was very active in patients that have a brain metastasis and that uh, the drug appears to be able to control disease there as well. So very exciting data, very promising, and the drug is not uh, yet approved by the FDA, but we're hoping that with this really clear uh, data suggesting efficacy that this will be an option in the near future for patients with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. Um, in, the same, uh, in the same setting, uh, we also saw uh, the results of another study uh called Destiny Breast which uh is a study that evaluated uh, a drug that is similar to traditional herceptin or more closely actually to more similar to Catsyla, which uh is trastuzumab deruxtecan so this is a uh an intravenous drug that has um you know uh, uh, basically herceptin the same medication linked to a uh, chemotherapy molecule and the whole concept is just like with Catsyla, that this medication uh, manufactured this way would be able to deliver chemotherapy more selectively uh, and specifically to the cancer cells that have her too and hopefully spare the rest of the of the normal cells from uh, from the effects of the chemotherapy drug and what we saw is this is a you know an earlier phase study but what we saw is that this uh, medication was um, able to shrink cancers in the metastatic setting much more uh, uh, I would say very effectively. This was a single-arm study, so it's not uh, was not comparing to any other drugs. But we saw that in patients that had already received several lines of previous treatments, for which unfortunately uh, currently there are limited options, uh, this this medication was able to induce significant responses in in the vast majority of patients. So again, very exciting for this particular drug, uh, you know, and we think that, you know, with additional studies it it has a future, um, you know, for patients in this setting. Um, We also saw other studies that were a little less uh, striking, if you will. Uh, You know, we had an update of a a study called SOFIA, which uh, evaluates, again, a novel or a new version of a of a, an antibody drug conjugate, which is the same type of medication that the one I just mentioned is. And um, in this study, um, we we saw that the 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 difference or the activity of this medication was not as impressive as we had previously uh, you know hoped for. So this is a drug called Uh There are some signs that maybe there may be a subset of patients that uh, may still benefit, but, um, you know, what we saw from San Antonio at this moment at least does not, uh, you know, support that this medication uh, will uh, make a, a, as a dramatic of a difference as the other two that I just mentioned. Um, and then we also saw uh, some um, uh, good news as well in, in the early stage HER2-positive setting um, we saw the results of a of a study evaluating caizyla the medication that i had mentioned that normally is used in metastatic setting you know using that medication for patients that have uh, uh a low risk uh, early stage breast cancer what that means is patients that have stage 1 disease and um you know are going to be traditionally receiving uh, some sort of uh, surgical intervention along with chemotherapy and trastuzumab Um, this is an effort to try to to decrease the amount of chemotherapy that these patients may need, and it's using this uh, smart way of delivering the chemotherapy selectively to the cancer cells uh, with GATSILA or TDM1, and we saw that um, in this study uh, those patients treated with this and without uh, traditional chemotherapy had really good outcomes and incredibly low risk of recurrences, even though they did not have to receive chemotherapy. Um, so, very promising, not quite, uh, you know, uh, ready for uh, for prime time, but a lot of people, uh, you know, have hopes that this will um, be something that is an option for patients in the future with low-risk disease. Um, and then um, I think that, you know, I, I, I favor you uh, spending most of my time talking about those topics because those are the ones that have led to most change uh, from San Antonio, but just uh, Uh, very quickly talking about, uh, you know, management of metastatic disease in general and and with the topic of late recurrences, I would just highlight that uh, uh, we saw the results of, uh, you know, a large meta-analysis that um, is conducted by the early breast cancer trialist cooperative group and they presented uh, kind of the trends over time of the outcomes of patients with breast cancer, uh, kind of a 20-year perspective and what I uh, would take away from that presentation is that uh, clearly we are seeing that the prognosis and the risk of breast cancer has uh, significantly improved over the last 20 years. And, of course, that's uh, that gives us a lot of uh, hope and joy, and uh, we think that... Obviously, that is related to uh, multiple factors, not a single, uh, a single breakthrough, but actually the accumulation of a lot of efforts to fine-tune the selection of treatment for patients and also uh, to detect the disease earlier. And with that, I would uh, give it back to Caroline.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leon Ferrer, That was really excellent, and uh, just covering a lot of really important topics for our uh, participants. Um, so thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Uh, Dr. Ruddy is a consultant, professor of oncology, director of cancer survivorship, R- Department of Oncology, Mayo Co- Clinic College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Ruddy is going to be addressing adherence to endocrine therapy, long-term side effects of treatment, and key questions to ask, ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ruddy.
4: Hello, and thank you so much for including me in this excellent program. Starting with data related to adherence to endocrine therapy, by which I mean receiving a full course of a recommended medication at the recommended dose, which for stage 1 to 3 hormonally sensitive breast cancer generally means taking an antiestrogen pill every day for at least five years, we saw important data presented at San Antonio from a trial called SWOG-S1105. And in this study, 724 survivors of hormonally sensitive breast cancer were assigned to either receive text message reminders to help them remember to take their endocrine therapy or not. And the patients who received the text messages, interestingly, were no more likely to continue their medication as recommended for at least three years than those who did not receive the text messages. But patients with no private insurance and those given a smaller supply of pills at a time did stop taking their endocrine therapy sooner than others. Patients who are experiencing substantial symptoms were also less likely to be adherent with their endocrine therapy. These data are important, not only because they show that text message reminders are probably not very helpful in this situation, but also because they emphasize the importance of symptom management during survivorship. The long-term effects of breast cancer treatment can include menopausal symptoms during endocrine therapy. These can also occur without endocrine therapy, especially in women who were premenopausal and then underwent chemotherapy or ovarian removal. Patients who experience significant menopausal symptoms, such as hot flashes or vaginal dryness or other side effects from endocrine therapy such as joint pains, are less likely to take their endocrine therapies as directed. There were data on sexual and vaginal symptoms presented at San Antonio as well from the SheCan study. This study enrolled 151 patients in Toronto, Canada, who had been taking adjuvant endocrine therapy for at least six months. This report by Dr. Skitch and colleagues stated that 77% of breast cancer survivors on endocrine therapy were experiencing sexual health issues, 36% had pain during intercourse, and more than half were experiencing vaginal dryness. A third said that their oncologists had never asked them about these issues, but 88% said they would be comfortable talking with their oncologists about sexual and or vaginal health. This emphasizes the importance of improving our communication between patients and oncologists with regard to symptom management and other survivorship issues. Dr. Mamounis and colleagues presented interesting data on the long-term side effects of taking 10 years of letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor endocrine therapy, rather than only 5, as from the NSABP B42 trial, I was encouraged to see in in these data that there was no increase in bone fracture with the longer therapy, despite the fact that aromatase inhibitors are known to cause bone thinning. Another important long-term toxicity in breast cancer survivors can be nerve damage or neuropathy related to certain types of chemotherapy. Drugs like paclitaxel, docetaxel, and carboplatin can cause temporary or permanent neuropathy Which can mean numbness, tingling, and pain in the hands and feet. Dr. Ball and colleagues presented a small study of 60 minutes of yoga daily for eight weeks for breast and gynecologic cancer survivors who were still experiencing neuropathy at least three months after the completion of chemotherapy. The average time since chemo on this study was actually three years, and 80 percent of the participants had received paclitaxel. The study was too small to be definitive. There were only 41 patients enrolled and randomized to yoga versus usual care. But we did see that neuropathy, flexibility, and physical function all seemed to be improved in the group assigned to do yoga. We also know from prior research that the drug duloxetine can help with neuropathy. I also want to quickly note that fatigue, insomnia, cognitive dysfunction, emotional distress, financial issues, lymphedema, pain, and heart problems can also be potentially chronic sequelae of treatment during and after therapy for breast cancer. It's important to ask your oncology team what types of side effects you may experience in the future and what you can do to mitigate your current and possible future toxicities. If your oncology provider is not asking you regularly about your symptoms, you should still tell him or her about them, and you should ask whether there are any medications or mind-body strategies that might help you. Sometimes it's helpful to visit a specialist. For example, a psychologist or a social worker can help with coping strategies to improve mental health, or a physical therapist may be, help, be able to help reduce lymphedema. I would also encourage you to talk to your health care team about whether and when you need breast imaging or physical exams and about what types of symptoms you should watch for as possible evidence of recurrence. With that, I'll stop, and I'll thank you all for
1: listening. I mean, I'm sorry, Ms. Dr. Ruddy. That was really outstanding. Thank you so much, um, and really uh, very important because these are important issues in terms of people continuing to take the medications and things like that. So that's I know there'll be questions about that during the Q&A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Shetland, and Ms. Shetland will be addressing. She's an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and she is our women's cancers program coordinator. And she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Thank
5: you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, as well as Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program Coordinator. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. The Women's Cancers Program aims to be a primary comprehensive source of support, information, and guidance for women facing cancer and their loved ones. Our goal is to meet women wherever they may be on their cancer journey. In my role, I maintain a clinical concentration on women's cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects the program and delivery of clinical interventions. I coordinate programmatic activities and outreach related to the Women's cancers Program, as well as create and implement numerous women's cancer support groups and community events throughout the year, including services specifically offered to those diagnosed with breast cancer. At Cancer Care, our professional licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual, as well as their loved ones and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that breast cancer can have on an individual. Cancer Care provides an array of services, including individual counseling and support groups offered in person, in the New York, New Jersey area, as well as short-term over the telephone nationally. Additional services include access to additional educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Finding support through other individuals during this challenging time can be very helpful. At this time, Cancer Care offers specific breast cancer support groups, several national online support groups, and a metastatic breast cancer telephone support group. We also offer a breast cancer support group and general patient support group through our New Jersey office and our women's cancer support group at our New York office. I also would like to share that in partnership with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, we are also able to offer specific support services to those diagnosed with TMBC. Additionally, cancer care offers individualized support for those impacted by a cancer diagnosis. Individual counseling can offer a space to express your feelings, emotions, and concerns one-on-one with an oncology social worker. A social worker can offer support and guidance, as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to your diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis and throughout treatment. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to absolutely call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673, to speak to one of our oncology social workers. You can discuss what led you to cancer care with one of our social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer support. We absolutely look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this program today. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. And now I will turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you.
1: Oh, Thank you so much. That was really wonderful and just wonderful resources and, um, and and you know, do take advantage of them and, um, and thank you so much for, for um, your presentation. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask them. I want to thank our speakers for really allowing that to happen. And so I'm going to ask Norma to bring our speakers on board and to actually um, to explain to the audience how to queue up the questions.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your tone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Stephanie K. Your line is open.
6: Yes, thank you so much, Caroline. This is I love listening to these seminars. Um, I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor, HER2 positive, no evidence of disease. But I have two questions. The first one was about the new any new blood test. I usually usually yearly get my CEA and CA 2729. And as a nurse, I know that it's, of course it's negative. But I've talked to many other women who have had the blood test and they have breast cancer that's metastasized, even though the test have been negative. So that's of course my concern as a nurse and as a survivor. That's my first question. The second question is on IVs and blood tests that you still could not allow to use your affected arm if you have lymphedema and especially I had twenty four lymph nodes taken out. Is you know, a total auxiliary node dissection of the arm. So I know the rest of your life you're told you're never allowed to use that arm ever. Uh, for any like even flu shots ever is there any new studies on that or are they keeping lymph nodes in especially if it's only in two lymph nodes breast cancer um what's the new studies and all that thank you so much
1: okay. okay well thank you so much stephanie thank you and um dr grayler do you want to start with that one so so there were two parts there. The first one is are
2: there any more um any different new blood tests that would detect cancer or be able to monitor uh cancer maybe particularly in the HER2 positive setting but across the board. And I think we saw a lot of data on what we're now calling liquid biopsies, where we're using the blood, so that's why it's a liquid biopsy, we're drawing a tube of blood, and we're looking for parts of the cancer. It could be circulating cancer cells in the blood, it could be just some DNA from the cancer, or sometimes even some RNA from the cancer, and can we find that in the blood, and does that help us, one, determine if there's active cancer, and two, can we actually do some of these molecular tests and and genomic profiling on what we're finding in the blood. And what I would have to say is that there's a lot of interest in this area, a lot of excitement in this area. We actually have a couple of um, liquid biopsies that are approved uh, in order to determine if you're eligible for a certain new drug, a, a PI3 kinase inhibitor called l or PICRAE. So we've got a specific approval, but it's for determining are you eligible for this drug. And I think that, um, that the field is moving really fast, and I think in the near future we will be doing a lot more of these liquid biopsies to detect and monitor cancer. Um, but there's no one that's we, we saw results on that's kind of standing out that we should all switch over to tomorrow. So that's the the answer on that. As, with respect to having blood drawn from an arm on a side where you've had an axillary lymph node dissection, we still always say try to use the other arm. But um, I would I would say I think it's a, a a relative but not an absolute recommendation, meaning if you really can't get any blood out of the other arm, is it, you know, are we saying you absolutely can't draw blood out of the side that had the lymph node dissection? I would say we would try to avoid it. And if we did, for some reason, need to draw blood on that arm, when you've had uh, an axillary lymph node dissection on that side, we would say keep the tourniquet on for a shorter period of time. You know, try not you know to to let the the fluid build up in that arm. Um and and we would still recommend avoiding it. Um but yes, I mean sometimes women have breast cancer on both sides and have had lymph nodes removed on both sides and we still uh have to draw blood. So so it's it's an it's a relative contraindication is how we would term it, but not an absolute. Um I think you know making sure we don't have you know, the tourniquet on long, making sure we avoid infection uh, on that side are what's
1: most important. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another
0: telephone question. Norma? Our next question comes from Marjorie G. Your line is open. Hello. Thank you so much for having this wonderful program. I just have a real quick question for Dr. Leon Serrar about this HER2-positive oral drug. I did not uh, write it down fast enough.
1: Oh, thank you for your question. And um, Doctor Grayler, could you address that? Yep.
0: So that um,
2: the drug that he was talking about, uh, the oral agent, it's called tucatinib. T u c a t i n i b. It's not yet FDA approved. It'll get another name when it when it gets approved. it will probably be easier to say. Um, and uh, that is uh, the oral drug that he was talking about. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Thanks. And uh, I think we're doing more question, normal.
0: Our next question is from R.J.G. Your line is open.
7: Hi. Um, actually, I have a three-parter. Can you hear me? Okay.
1: Yes, we can. Yes.
7: Oh, okay. Um, it's a three-parter. One is, uh, what is the a true consensus of opinion of metastatic cancer? Because I've had one lymph node only removed after the surgery, and some doctors say yes, it's metastatic, some say no. That's my number one question. Number two is this sounds really dumb, I'm sure. Can you leapfrog from one type of breast cancer to a different type? And three, can I hear more about letrozole? I've been on it for about four years with pain daily, and I want to keep going because I'm terrified not to.
1: Okay, well thank you, those are great questions. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Um, Ruddy to address the third question, and Dr. Graylor yeah. um, to answer the other two. So. Um, sure. Do you want to start talking about with the third? Sure. Okay.
4: Yes, or if you want, I can. I could probably take all three if you if you prefer. Um, oh, okay. All right. Um, just to address the first question about. Metastatic cancer, this can be so confusing the way people use that term different ways, but when we're talking about metastatic cancer, we generally mean cancer that has spread outside the breast and underarm area to other parts of the body. So we're not talking about just cancer that has spread to lymph nodes under the arm. Um, So the trials that you heard about related to metastatic cancer were um, enrolling patients who had cancer in other parts of the body, not just the chest, the, the breast, and the underarm area. Uh, With regard to the second question about leapfrogging from one type of breast cancer to another, there is uh, about a 10% rate when we do see breast cancers recur of a change in the hormone receptor status or the HER2 new. So, yes, a breast cancer can come back looking different than it originally looked at the first diagnosis of cancer. And then the third question about letrozole causing pain, this is so common and such a big issue. Uh, about, you know, almost half of all patients on letrozole and similar drugs do experience significant joint or muscle pain related to this. And there are, there's a lot of interest in how we can help reduce this, and some treatments that have been found to be effective uh, include acupuncture, interestingly, exercise. Uh, there's a drug called duloxetine that seems to help. So, and there's there's interest in in additional treatments as well. So, I would encourage you to discuss this with your doctor. Make sure your doctor's aware of the pain that you're having, um, and so that you can get access to optimal treatment for this.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And do you want to add anything, Dr. Grelo, or totally? No,
2: um, I, I think that Dr. Rodi carried
1: that covered that very well. Okay, excellent. Okay. Um, and then um, so we have some questions from some of our online participants. Um, so the question, um, and I'll give this to Dr. Grelo, why wasn't my metastatic breast cancer found sooner? I was recently diagnosed. Um, and that kind of question? So it's a general question. Um hard to imagine how
2: i can even begin to answer that <laughs> um uh with, with without knowing details which we aren't supposed to be talking about a detailed specific case uh, in this q and a i mean um obviously it's devastating when you're diagnosed with a metastatic recurrence and we we always look back and try to second guess and say could we have seen this sooner and would it matter uh in terms of how long I'm going to survive, and we don't know the answers to to those questions, but I would, um, you know, I guess my response will be that we are working with the National Cancer Institute and all of the four major adult clinical trials groups uh, in cancer that are funded by the National Cancer Institute on ways that we can better monitor uh, for early recurrence, and then see if we can impact it by acting sooner. So there are some major important clinical trials that are being designed that will be better investigating whether earlier detection of recurrence offers better outcomes from therapy and a longer life. And uh, so I think that we're investigating that area and seeing
1: uh, what we can do to improve that. Excellent. Okay. And Dr. Roddy, do you want anything? Or?
4: No, I think that's perfect.
1: Okay. Okay. And we have another
0: telephone question. And our next question comes from Sandra B. Your line is open. Sandra, check hello? the mute button. Hi, hello. Go Go Hi, ahead, ahead. Sandra.
1: We can hear you. Yep. Okay. Um, My question was this:
6: When you were discussing the the triple negative um, trials, I was interested in knowing: Do they have anything going on for people who were in like stage two or three, but not metastatic, or is that going to be down the road or not not in my future?
1: Great question. Thank you, Dr. Graylow.
6: Yeah, so so two of the three
2: trials that I outlined were actually in stage two and three breast cancer. Those were the trials where the patients were diagnosed and uh, did not have metastatic disease and got preoperative chemotherapy with or without the immunotherapy, and then we looked at the response in the breast and the lymph nodes at the time of surgery. So two of the three trials I outlined were in stage 2 and 3 disease. Um, We do not have these drugs approved there yet, but, yes, those trials are ongoing. We've got interesting and promising results there, and, uh, you know, they'll be in front of the FDA, I think,
1: uh, soon. Thank you. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants um, um, for um, for Dr. Um, Ruddy. Um, what do you think about the breast MRI test? When do you think it should be prescribed?
4: The use of breast MRI in breast cancer survivors is very controversial. It is not part of the guidelines. In, meaning the NCCN or ASCO guidelines for average women after breast cancer, but there are selected patients who likely could benefit. Certainly, patients who carry a BRCA mutation or other deleterious genetic mutation that increases the chance of having a second breast cancer and who haven't undergone bilateral mastectomy are considered for breast MRI in addition to mammography during survivorship after a stage one to three cancer. Um, and there may be other populations. We we really need more research to understand whether patients who, for example, did had breast cancers that were not initially visible on mammogram and only could be visualized on MRI, is there some benefit in that population? We we really don't know. We need more studies on this.
1: Thank you. And, Dr. Grelo, do you want to add anything? Or? Um, no. I, I think that was okay. thorough. Perfect. And the next question, um, if, and for Dr. Grelo, if someone is 20 years cancer-free from breast cancer, how long should one be followed by, up by the surgeon?
2: Wow. Um, Our surgeons usually, if it's an invasive breast cancer, usually would see the patients uh, post-operatively once, and as long as they're healing well, um, then it would be the medical oncologists that would follow patients long-term, and they wouldn't see a surgeon again at our facility unless they were having uh, trouble with healing or pain in the breast. Um, We... In medical oncology, tend to follow our patients for about five years if they have early stage disease and, and don't have a recurrence. And then we graduate our patients at about five years to our Women's Wellness Follow-Up Center, or we help facilitate their care back with the primary care provider, um, and where we uh, can still offer, you know, guidance to the primary care provider, or in our Women's Wellness Clinic we have uh, breast Uh, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants who are experts in breast cancer who do most of of the follow-up, and if there's ever a problem, then they come back to our medical oncology clinic. So we all have different ways of following uh, patients, uh, and uh, depending on where you are, who you are, what the the practice is,
1: uh, they might be slightly different. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Roddy, do you want to add anything to that? No,
4: I guess I, I would agree with all of that, and I'd say that certainly, as Dr. Greylo alluded to, there's increasing uh, awareness that primary care providers really, um, many, mo- if not most, primary care providers are very capable of doing breast exams and following uh, breast cancer survivors. Uh, and, yeah, in our center, many patients only see a medical oncologist once and then graduate to an internal medicine breast clinic follow-up similar to um, the, the women's wellness clinic that uh, Dr. Graylo was just referring to. And I think there's a lot, of, um, a lot of satisfaction with that model amongst patients.
1: Excellent, Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Ruddy, um, is there a time limit as to when lymphedema can occur after breast cancer or after a certain time? Is it no longer possible?
4: Unfortunately no there's no there's no time after which lymphedema is impossible. Uh it is uh, as was alluded to a little bit earlier the it's much more likely that lymphedema will occur after a full axillary dissection compared to just a sentinel node biopsy. And happily we're discovering that more and more patients can be treated with sentinel lymph node biopsy alone such that lymphedema is becoming rarer. And um but nevertheless it isn't something that there's a time point at which we can say this would never happen.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um and for Dr. Greylow, um are sons of mothers with breast cancer more vulnerable to breast or prostate cancer?
2: Well that that's an interesting question. Um what we have found is that if A male has inherited a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 gene mutation from either their mother or their father. then they do have an increased risk of developing male breast cancer. It's a bit more common in the BRCA2 mutation carriers, but it's still a very low risk, although um, quite elevated compared to the background risk of male breast cancer. Additionally, in both of those cases, we do see some increase in prostate cancer risk, not to the same degree that we see breast and ovarian cancer. Risk however. So, in that setting, um if there is a BRCA1 or 2 mutation and if it's been passed down to the son, they do have a bit of an increased risk. But that's not necessarily the case for the average patient with breast cancer and her uh and her sons.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And another question. This is for Dr. Ruddy from one of our online participants. Um, I'm sorry if you already answered this. Um, uh, I was on tamoxifen for four years, stopped before five years due to side effects, but that was 2005, and I am cancer-free. What is the current research on recommendation for how long to be on tamoxifen? Is it still preferred treatment? Are there any long-term side effects or complications that might occur long after stopping the medication?
4: Great question. Uh, The tamoxifen data have evolved in recent years. We found out a few years ago that some women may benefit from taking 10 years of tamoxifen instead of just the 5 that we used to recommend. That's not recommended for everyone, but patients who have a higher risk of recurrence sometimes choose the 10-year therapy. In terms of the long-term side effects, after stopping a drug, happily, there don't seem to be significant um, late effects of tamoxifen. The the most serious risks with tamoxifen are of uterine cancer uh, in postmenopausal women and blood clots, but these seem to, in general, occur while taking the drug. Uh, The uterine cancer risk... um, may persist for several years after completion, but it's not a lifelong risk. Uh, and with regard to alternative therapies, certainly aromatase inhibitors are an alternative in postmenopausal women. And these are drugs that instead of blocking the estrogen receptor, reduce the uh, estradiol level, and... Um, have different types of side effects than tamoxifen, but are now more commonly used in postmenopausal women. In premenopausal women, tamoxifen is still often used, but um, for women with higher risk of recurrence, we also sometimes consider putting the ovaries to sleep with an ovarian suppressing injection. And then if we do that, we sometimes use tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor in combination.
1: Excellent. And uh, that's excellent. Uh, Thank you. And um, Dr. Greeley, do you want to add anything to that or uh-huh.
2: No, I think, um you know we continue to get more and more data on the appropriate duration of endocrine therapy, but uh particularly in the case of somebody who who stopped in two thousand and five and has been disease free since then uh, i i I would not think that the the data on longer duration tamoxifen or switching to an aromatase inhibitor would apply because it's been fifteen years since then and and they're doing well, yay.
1: I agree. <laughs> That's a great way to sort of conclude. That's a great way to conclude the call. I think <laughs> I want to thank our speakers. You've really been terrific. I know we could go on for quite some time because there are many more questions, and so I'll address how to get those questions answered. But I want to thank our speakers, particularly for just being phenomenal. And I want to thank all of you on the call who actually have been listening, and those of you who queued up and asked questions, both on the phone and online. Um, and I do remind you that this is a one-hour program. However, there is more coming, so that's one thing to be aware of. And also. Um, for those of you who still have medical questions, of course, um, your healthcare team. I don't want to sidestep them in any way. Of course, you can go and speak to your healthcare team and ask them the questions. Even if you asked a question today, you can go back to your healthcare team with it um, because they may know more things about you than you're able to. You know, provide obviously on a call like this, so do go back to your healthcare team as well. And for those of you who would like to go to credible sites to get more information, um, there are a number of breast cancer organizations that you'll, at the end of today's program, probably tomorrow actually, you'll get an evaluation form, and that evaluation form will include. Um, all the resources um, that um, we um, gave to you up front, in terms of on the brochures and online, um, about the breast cancer organizations, and all of them could be a great resource too. You can pick and choose whichever one you want, they're all quite excellent. And you also, um, there is also the National Cancer Institute, um, um, they have both a toll free number and they also have a live chat feature, which is really nice for people who are international because you can uh, post a Question on their website, and one of the information specialists will address it. They are on West Coast Time, business hours nine to five, so they're available, and they're it's it's a great resource too as well. And then you can take the information you get back to your treating healthcare team, and then have that discussion with them. Um, and also, um, we do have. Two programs coming up that you might be interested in. One is a part two of this program, which is on January 8th updates on the treatment of estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive and HER2 positive breast cancer um, from this same meeting. Um, so that's another call that you may many of you have registered for already, but if you didn't know about that, that's there. And then we have another program coming up on January 29th on what's new in the treatment of breast cancer for women of all ages. so that might be of interest to you as well it's a different it's a whole different program. So um there's a lot coming up and um we really do um appreciate your being on the call today. Also this is the end of a, almost the end of a of a of a, of, a of twenty nineteen, not quite. Um and it's a sort of holiday season, even if you're not a holiday a holiday that you celebrate. Nevertheless it's a kind of concept around us of this. And so just to be aware that um, you know, we really um recognize that this can be a time of of, you know kind of, oh, just thinking and questions and things like that. And do be aware of the services of Cancer Care if you would like to take advantage of them. They are free. And I think Ms. Shetland did an excellent job explaining the services to you. And you can contact us anytime at 800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And you can also post a question there as well. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day.
0: And um, and, uh, thank you all.